That's the foghorn. That must mean it's time for the Cavaships podcast. Whereas every week we try to cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, rumors about the Pentagon's budget plans for the Navy do not sound good. Not good at all, as a matter of fact. We'll take a brief look at some of the details we're hearing. And we'll talk with the destroyer captain about his recent experiences getting his ship through a major yard period. He'll also add some thoughts about what the Navy could do to make the whole process better. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. Malabar exercises kicked off August 26th in the Pacific's Philippine Sea off Guam. The annual Australia, India, Japan, U.S. maritime exercises have gained stature and strength in recent years and have increasingly annoyed China, who've used the maneuvers as intrusive. The first round of exercises is led by the Japanese helicopter carrier Kaga. Also in the Pacific, the British carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth and ships of her strike group on August 25th wrapped up nearly two weeks of exercises in the Philippine Sea with U.S. Navy's America Amphibious Ready Group and Japanese warships led by the helicopter carrier Icy. Some of the maneuvers were folded into the larger U.S.-led large-scale global exercise 21, a major command and control effort. Speaking of annoying China, the U.S. carried out another passage of the Taiwan Strait on August 27th, this time with two ships, the U.S. Navy destroyer Kidd and the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Monroe. The transit between Taiwan and mainland China keeps up the roughly once-a-month pace the U.S. has held to over the past two years. The disaster relief mission in Haiti continued throughout the week with the U.S. Coast Guard, Navy, Army, and other United States government forces working throughout the island country, devastated on August 14th by a 7.2 magnitude earthquake. Coast Guard helicopters in particular performed a number of medical evacuations. Three Navy ships and at least seven Coast Guard cutters are also taking part in the Haiti mission. In a rare high-profile visit for the Littoral Combat Ship Force, Vice President Kamala Harris visited the LCS Tulsa August 23rd at Singapore's Changi Naval Base. Harris toured the ship and held an all-hands call on board, noting the ship's presence in the Indo-Pacific region is, quote, critical to the security and prosperity of the United States. Tulsa is one of at least three LCSs currently deployed to the Western Pacific. In the Atlantic, the carrier Dwight D. Eisenhower on August 25th entered Norfolk Naval Shipyard for a planned 13-month overhaul. Ike returned to Norfolk in mid-July from her latest deployment, during which the crew was awarded the Navy Unit Commendation. The Eisenhower's next deployment is not likely to be before late 2023. And just before Ike entered the yard, the carrier George H.W. Bush finally left ending a 30-month overhaul that ran six months longer than planned. The Essex Amphibious Ready Group deployed in early August from San Diego with the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit. The ARG left Southern California with no public notice of the deployment, a policy we find hard to understand given the overall deterrence mission of amphibious and carrier group deployments. And that's a quick wrap-up of Naval News. Well, turning from the world to the world inside the Beltway. It's late summer in Washington, time for key decisions to be made about what will be in next year's budget request. And so far, those decisions do not seem to be going the Navy's way. 
Chris, what are some of the things you're hearing? Well, Chris, we got word um, a couple months ago, just as we were starting this podcast, that as the Navy was given instructions to begin planning or to to really begin diving into uh, the building of the follow-on year's uh, budget proposal, that there was quite a bit that it needed to trim uh, both for 23 and for the out years. And that's exactly what um, the, the Navy planners have been doing. The things that we are hearing about are they're getting rid of uh, ships, platforms that you maybe would expect them to get rid of and getting rid of platforms that you, you know, will be surprised uh, when you see them in the budget. Now, I'll say it's early in the process. This, this kind of happens every year. They'll dig in, they'll cut as deep as they need to, um, and then they'll send it to the Office of the Secretary of Defense. They'll get more guidance, and then it goes back to the services in the fall to kind of keep going back and forth until they kind of finalize the budget either right before or right after the holiday. Well, that, that, that is true. This is, a, this is a time of give and take, but... Um... You know, you have, you have to look at the, the verbiage that people have been saying now for the last, really the last 10 months, a year. Uh, nobody's talking anymore about a 355 ship Navy. Nobody's talking about, not, we need even more than that. Um, those days are gone. Now we have the CNO constantly talking about divest to invest, meaning they're decommissioning ships that they don't, that they don't, uh, well, that it's arguable if they need them or not, but they're decommissioning ships uh, to invest in future ships, future assets that will not be uh, operational anytime soon. They're getting rid of ships that are, that are operational, that are doing things. So they've already talked about um, decommissioning a large number of cruisers, uh, getting rid of the Mark VI patrol boats, which are no, no more than three years old. Uh, there are, now we're hearing stories of uh, getting rid of all the freedom class LCSs. That, that would be half of the littoral combat ship fleet, some of which are still under construction, have yet to be delivered. Um, most of them have not even deployed. Those are new ships, but um, they want to concentrate on, on, the, on the independence class ships, which are out of the Pacific right now, and, uh, and, and dump apparently all the LCSs that you can see in Mayport right now. Along with that, we're also hearing that the uh, expeditionary sea bases are likely to go. That's sort of perplexing because they're busy right now. There's one, the Lewis Puller has been out in CENTCOM operating in Djibouti and the Persian Gulf, been quite busy uh, doing exactly what it's designed to do, be an expeditionary sea base. Um, there's another one, the, uh, the Herschel Woody Williams is the only ship assigned to AFRICOM, has been pretty rigorous program of uh, running around visiting African ports. They, they're, they're working their way through uh, West Africa at the moment. And uh, the lad, the nurse ship, the Miguel Keith, is the newest one, and she's about to uh, position herself in the Marianas. But the, all those ships would go. Um, even more surprising, you know, under the heading of, you know, things, things you'd, be, you'd be surprised to hear what, what they're talking about. Uh, apparently, they're talking about uh, decommissioning some of the early San Antonio class uh, amphibious platform docks, which are very big, expensive, you know, like a billion and a half dollars uh, for those ships. They're exceptionally capable. The uh, oldest one was commissioned in 2005. So, and really it was only, it took, over, took quite, quite a while to become fully operational. Um, that's that's what, that not even 16 years in service at this point. Um, and they're very capable ships that, that you might think they'd want to keep. 
So they're also, I'm also hearing there, there'll be force reductions. So decreasing the number of sailors in the fleet and personnel. Um, it, it, it remains to be seen what the strategy is here. There's one thing to just get rid of things they don't want to pay for, but in the name of what? What, is, what kind of fleet are you trying to build? I, I'm reminded of the, the British decision some years ago to begin decommissioning a lot of their ships uh, early in their planned operational lives in order to reinvest in a carrier navy. They now have two great big, huge aircraft carriers, the biggest ships the Royal Navy's ever had, but they were immensely expensive and they had to buy those ships their aircraft and uh, six destroyers to be their, their uh, escorts. And they divested themselves of a great deal of capability. Uh, at least whether you agreed with it or not, there was logic in that. I'm sort of waiting to hear what the logic is in this. The last thing I'll say, Chris, because I think you, did, you gave a good roundup is for those that listen to the podcast, and we certainly will, will take this advice, really, really pay attention to the things that the CNO and other leaders are saying throughout the fall as they likely telegraph the types of things that they are going to propose be cut. Um, listen to whatever um, public engagements they have, read what they say um, in, in their writings, um, because I think that as as you roll into budget season, and it's never too early to start thinking about budget season, uh, you know, during the winter and the early months of the new year, um, we're really going to get a sense for how bad things are going to get. I don't think it's out of the, the realm of the possibility that we're at 275 to 250 ships when all said and done. Sure doesn't sound good. Well, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Moving to our guest segment. We are happy to be joined by Commander Isaac Harris, former commanding officer of the USS Ramage. Isaac, first of all, it's great to see you. Uh, Isaac and I were shipmates uh, in our time in the Pentagon. I guess you could still say shipmates or building mates or what, you know, whatever we would right, shore mates. There you go. What, um, whatever we would call it. But um, Isaac recently authored a piece for the U.S. Naval Institute proceedings called "Change the Surface Navy's Maintenance Philosophy." Almost immediately, it made the circles of both graybeards and active duty alike. Isaac, again, thanks for joining us. Can you take just a couple minutes and kind of summarize the, the article and then we can get into specifics? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris. And Chris, I took Ramage about uh, a month after we got back from deployment. I'd been the XO and um, ended up doing uh, what was supposed to be a nine month SRA and ended up turning into about a 15 month SRA. So almost my entire command tour was, uh, was that uh, availability. You know, as I was kind of going on that journey of discovery, I uh, just started jotting down notes and I had my notes I took every day and um, sort of about six or eight months in, I, I kind of thought to myself, I should do something with this. And, and um, you know, I think the Navy has, has made some, some, some pretty good strides to try and get after, uh, you know, what has been widely publicized is a, is a pretty exp uh, extensive uh, maintenance budget over the last, you know, decade or so. Um, they made some improvements. And uh, what I was seeing though, was that there were some, I would say some things are being left on the table um, that could uh, kind of further that more efficient use of maintenance dollars to kind of get at some of the problems that um, the service Navy has been seeing over the last uh, 20 years. And, I, and those are my recommendations. Before I throw it to Chris, just very quickly, how prepared did you feel? There's a lot of training that goes into, you know, being a tactician, you know, a ship handler, all of those things. How prepared did you feel to be the leader of a major uh, availability, both from a uh, working with industry, but also in managing these types of pro uh, projects? You know, in retrospect, I probably, I think I felt underprepared. 
I felt prepared at the time going into it. Uh, I had actually done an SRA as a as a department head in in MHI, so in the same yard that I was at uh, with Ramage. Um, you know, I'd been uh, involved in all of that. I kind of was aware of generally the contracting process. I'd been on the ship as the XO, so for the last year and a half before going into the yards, I was very familiar with the SRA package. Uh, I think the area that um, I didn't really have a good grasp on was one, you know, the really what became, you know, the CO's responsibility for, um, you know, stopping work in some cases, or, or at least demanding that the standards be held. And and I would say all of the maintenance team was trying to do that, but really, um, you know, exercising that role and that authority uh, became you know, readily clear that I had to, I had to do that. I had to play a very active role in that, in that, in that team between uh, myself, uh, the project manager of Marmac and the, um, the lead maintenance activity. Um, there, you know, there, they do cover some of this stuff in, in the TICOM NDOC at Surfland. Uh, so there was a lot of discussion of it. I think um, it was also some discussion at, at the PXO and PCO uh, classes in, in uh, Newport. Um, I, you know, af after the fact, uh, probably, toward the nine month mark or so, I did have a conversation and uh, I think Surfland's kind of taking this on about, um, you know, bringing in a more specific tailored, you know, sort of TICOM in-doc, if you will, for an SRA that kind of gives you a little bit more data on, on what that specific yard does, you know, some of the maintenance practices that's going on there, things that you wouldn't necessarily know uh, from a historical context that, you know, unless you're doing this on a day-to-day -day basis, you're just not going to get. I, th I think those, those things that are playing an outsized role in the execution of the SRA is, you know, you know, MHI may be more subcontractors than BAE. So you're going to have to deal with the fact that you don't have the direct contact you have with one where you would with the other. You know, there's all these things that you just, you're just not going to get unless you're doing uh, SRAs on a daily basis. And, um, you know, I think uh, Marmac and some of the EDOs there are, are do, do, do some of that. Um, but, you know, it's different when it's your ship. So I, I think, uh, I think certainly takes some act actions there to actually move that in the right direction. Uh, Commander Chris Cavus here. So one of the things you're you're urging is the creation of a virtual twin. Absolutely. For your for your class of ship, do you have a Flight One early version class mm -hmm. of early Burke class of destroyers? And while ships now are being um, certainly new ships are being designed digitally from 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 the ground up, uh, that's not something that exists right now for these older ships. Do you think is so? How would this work? You're you're, you're envisioning a DDG fifty one virtual, like you call yeah. it the DDG fifty one B. But obviously, there are the many advantages to modeling and mm -hmm. trying to trying to look at the problem. But from a practical manner, do you think that's something that can be created before these ships really do reach the end of their service lives? Well, I will tell you, Chris, that one of the great things about being an operator is you just say like, "Hey, we need this," and then other smart people go figure it out. <laughs> that being said. Um, I think that, you know, one of the, the things that you know, we, we had, Ramage had, was baseline nine. So we're the newest uh, baseline for the destroyers. We also had the uh, IBNS system. We had, you know, um, uh, integrated, you know, um, engineering plant. So there, there is a, a, an amazing amount of data that's being produced, you know, minute by minute, both in the steering and the engineering plant, as well as the combat systems. That data is used, you know, it's used by, you know, different parts of the, you know, the Navy enterprise, both, you know, Dahlgren obviously does all the combat system stuff. There's, you know, NASA and other entities use a lot of the, uh, the data from the, uh, the engineering plant, you know, and, and then you have all the guys running around taking logs, they're entering their log entries into a database, you know, every, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. So um, a lot of that is, is there already, uh, you know, I think, and, and then you add on the fact that, 
you know, when I say a virtual model, I don't just mean of the hull itself. I mean, you know, when, how many uh, SRAs has, has the ship done? How many SRAs has it deferred? You know, what was the, you know, the delta between what the SRA was supposed to cover and what ended up getting funded? You know, what was the manning like for the last two or three years? You know, did it get a double pump deployment? Did it get extended on deployment? You know, all these things, I, you know, it, it is, it is a, it's, a, it's a monumental challenge. I'm not going to lie and, and say I think this is going to be easy. But, um, you know, I think those are the, you know, the each is, you know, we were just talking about a minute ago, preservation, right? Well, preservation isn't just about, you know, paint plus brushes equals your preserve, right? I mean, you have to look at the ship schedule, how much they're underway, how much they're in port, what's the manning like, you know, maybe that ship had uh, an extra 20% of undesignated seamen for the last three years, and they had a great Bozeman crew that's been doing a lot of painting, or maybe it's the reverse, and they were at 20% down, and they haven't had the opportunity to do as much preservation as they would have liked. So those are the things that kind of go into the life cycle costs and the life cycle preservation. And I think if you can model that, then you can then predict out uh, some of the things that we're finding where one of the, one of the uh, issues we had was um, our, uh, our PZ rooms, our, our CPS fan rooms were, um, you know, with the chemical protective system the ship has, as an, you know, a, a pressurized uh, internal airflow system for chemical protective protection. So there are a couple spaces in the ship, four, I think four fan rooms that pull in that air and bring it through, you know, filters to make sure it's coming in uh, and it's clean. Uh, well, that that space, because of the amount of airflow it has of just straight salty sea air, has an immense amount of preservation. And we had a couple of jobs on, on two of those fan rooms that we thought were going to be, you know, fairly quick. And we found is that uh, as soon as we got in there, the contractors got in there, started, you know, basically cutting out the steel that we're supposed to replace. They just kept going. They couldn't find good steel, and it wasn't. It's not unpredictable. I mean, that, is, that is a high uh, is a space that's known for its high amount of corrosion because of the fact that it's just sucking in salt air the entire time. Uh, anytime the ship's you know, basically anytime the ship's doing ventilation, which is almost all the time. So, um, so I think that could have been a predicted uh, predicted item and probably planned a little bit better. Uh, so we weren't doing all of that work in situ, whether it should have been you know, planned ahead of time, done economically, as opposed to it being done as growth work, which is always the most expensive. Do you think the Navy's predictive models, maintenance predictive models are, are getting better or, or, or is it just about the same? They, there's, a, there's been a routine going back years and years and years where every so often those models change. The same system has not remained in place very long. Currently, what's your assessment of those predictive models based on this availability? So I, I can't say, I, I can't, I've not seen any of those models. I mean, I know that they exist. Um, so I can't speak to whether or not they're getting better or worse because I honestly don't know. Uh, I will say that um, SurfMap, as I mentioned in my article, has a uh, responsibility for taking some of those lessons learned and applying them to the class. And uh, you know, one of the things that we saw in particular, one of the main causes of my uh, SRA being delayed was some uh, hull work on the uh, auxiliary, auxiliary room number one. It's a class-wide issue um, that you know, the bottom of that space, the bilge, is the top of a fuel tank. Um, so you know, that space has uh, the cooling water for two of our major combat systems equipment, has ACs, has fire pumps. So there's a lot of you know, it's supposed to be a dry bilge, but it's a constant battle. A lot of standing water in that space. It has, you know, has corrosion. And so um, what we found, again, supposed to be a smaller repair and turning into a bigger repair. Uh, but SurfMap did, you know, look at that and they compared it with some other recent availabilities, particularly ones with uh, Flight 1 DDGs, and they changed that model. So uh, going forward, 
uh, if you're doing that that repair, which we were doing, which was a known repair, which has been done on several other DDGs, they're not going to say, well, you're only going to have so much steel for a small repair. They're just going to budget in as part of the job, a much larger repair. And then if it's if it's better, you know, great. We, we lost a little bit of money in planning, but we certainly didn't spend the egregious amount of money that it takes to do that and the time that costs to replan everything. And then the ultimate extension of the SRA, which, you know, just being in plan costs you, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars every day because you're sitting in somebody else's, you know, water. So for, for Ramage, did you all complete the planned scope of work that you were looking for when you went in? We, yeah, we completed the SRA. I mean, we, we completed our, our, the planned jobs we had. I think, you know, it just took longer. Right. Uh, and mainly that was, that was from the amount of growth work that they ultimately found. So there was, there was an effort some years ago called ShipMain to get a handle on all these, uh, you know, and, this, and, and there's immense pressure on everybody to stay on time, stay on budget, get the ships out. Um, and yet everybody who's ever opened the hood of a car to work on it knows that you find things in there that you didn't notice until you pop the hood. Right. Same thing with any, with any boat, any ship. Uh, just like you said, you start getting in, the, in these compartments there was a lot more work that, than, than you had initially realized. That's inevitable. Um, so there's a, there's a push me pull you um, effort here from the Navy, and you know, and this is testimony to Congress. This is from at the highest levels about you know we have to get our ships in and get them out. We have to get availabilities with more operational time, and we have to get a handle on cost. So a way you know, good good luck doing that when you're down on the deck plates trying to actually make stuff work but there was an effort with shipping was something that would you went in you had a work package when you went in and in, into the yard uh and you you held that work package any emergent work that appeared you said next time so you wound up getting essentially a lot of half-assed work done because you only did half the job because only half the job you know wound up being the part that was specified so it was, it was it was wound up being deferred work and it didn't work right um, i mean you know when you're talking about where we need to go in ship maintenance how do you I mean, what what's a practical response to dealing with the unknown x the unknown is a known factor of every every overhaul every availability right um with getting the job done and getting it done on time and within a reasonable cost yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I, I don't think there's a good answer to that. Um, I, you know, it, kind of the point I made in the article, and and I used, you know, I, I ripped it directly from the 2017 uh, strategic review that uh, um, Amarafa did. Uh, you know, we we've been over-consuming ship life. I mean, it's just a fact. You know, we we went from 600 ship navy uh, in 2000 or uh, in 85 to a 300 ship navy in 2001, right as we started on uh, 20 years of a war on terror, where we you know, we're deferring maintenance because we needed the availability of those ships. I mean, that was a legitimate decision at the time. And I don't think, I still think it's a legitimate decision. It just comes with a cost. You know, you, you make that, you make that, those trades on a day-to-day -day basis. If you need a ship, you need a ship and you, you kind of deal with the consequences later. But those consequences are, are here. You know, we, we um, and kind of the point I made in the article was that, um, you know, uh, Burke was ordered in 85, Right. So you figure what, what was the world in 1985 and what, what were they looking forward to of, you know, what was a ship's life in terms of maintenance going to be in 1985, looking for the you know the 35 years of the ex expected life of the Burke. And it was going to be, you know, six month reliable deployments with an 18 percent uh, deployed time. You know, and that and that lasted for about uh, a decade. 
until about 2001, and then it changed uh, dramatically. So, um, yeah, I think part of the problem is you just don't know how bad it is. And there's really no way to get after that until you get into the SRA. Because, you know, to your point, we, we open, we operate a lot of systems, we open stuff, we do the, um, the inspections, uh, you know, we do zone inspections, you got to hit every, every space, every quarter, but we don't get into the voids and tanks. And, a lot, and those end up being a lot of the places where they kind of bite you because you only do those inspections really when you're an, S, an SRA and sometimes only when you're in a dry dock because you have to empty those tanks to get into them. Um, you know, I, I think part of, part of it is, is taking every opportunity that you can to open and inspect. Um, I think that uh, that would be, you know, just, I, I mentioned that the fact that, you know, anytime you have a tank open, you should inspect it because it's, it's there, it's easy, just do it. Um, and if you find something you don't like, that's a risk decision. You know, you may say like, hey, look, we can slap something on this and it's safe to operate for another six months until we get to our SRA. And that's OK. That's a decision to make. Uh, but I think the problem is a lot of to your point, we just don't know. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. And I think that that could that could bite us. Thank you very much uh, for for joining us. I'll ask you this very last question and then we'll let, let you go. Um, all of the things that you've seen, do you feel that the Navy has a good handle on what it needs to do and where it's going with regards to everything from preservations to major maintenance to modernization, are, are the right people thinking about the hard problems that, that you and others are identifying? I do think the Navy knows uh, where it is. I think the, the Navy understands, you know, the enterprise understands the extent of the problem. Uh, you know, and unfortunately we're, you know, I think we're sort of in this, uh, you know, geopolitical transition period where, you know, we sort of realized we weren't quite, uh, on the pace we needed to be with some pacing threats, and, and we're spending a lot of money on on trying to uh, advance our lethality, as I mentioned. You know, and and then baseline nine ramage is a good example of that. Uh, really, uh, an amazing leap in, in lethality since the baseline five uh, flight ones. Um, and that, again, it goes back to where's your risk decision? Uh, if you you know if you're going to spend money somewhere, there's only a limited amount. You got to take it. I think the the thing that I would you know recommend to anybody that you know that has the authority to do it is you know, at least understand the risk you're taking. You know, if that if that's a um, if that means that sometimes you send a ship on deployment that you'd rather not, at least you understand that hey, maybe there's an area you don't send up to the high north. We're doing a lot of stuff in the high north. It's very wavy up there. You know, that can take a, you know just the, the high sea state can make put a beating on your ship that maybe you're not willing to take with one ship that you are with another one. So I think those kind of you know informed decisions are what the Navy needs to shoot for because we're just never going to get to the point where we can just buy down all of the the backlog of maintenance. This is not going to happen. Thank you again, uh, Commander Isaac Harris. Thanks for joining us. Wish you the best of luck in your shore duty and hope you'll come back on and join us on another topic. Gentlemen, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you, sir. Now hear this. Now hear this. Okay, time for Squawk Box. The budget battles being fought now inside the Pentagon and the White House are shaping up as a disaster for the Navy. At this point, the outlook for the 2023 budget is for a smaller Navy, fewer ships, fewer people. The hounds are not just barking at the door, they're in the house, they're hungry, and they are feeding. There seems to be little appetite in the Pentagon's top leadership to support a Navy that can maintain a worldwide presence. The relentless calls of the past decade to grow the fleet well beyond its current level have grown silent. There isn't a Navy leader in the job today who is demanding a bigger fleet. This is perplexing. Nature abhors a vacuum, so the saying goes, and if an ever-shrinking U.S. Navy is unable to keep the seas in the Western Pacific, the Indian Ocean, the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and ever more importantly, the Arctic, 
someone will fill that vacuum. Hello, China. Hello, Russia. There's a classic quote from Lenin. You probe with bayonets. If you find mush, you push. If you find steel, you withdraw. That pretty much sums up China. They push and push. If they find little or no resistance, they push more. If there is resistance, they tend to back off and look elsewhere. That resistance role is one the US Navy plays all over the world. It's why American warships cruise the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, the Strait of Hormuz, the Black Sea. It's why they carry out freedom of navigation passages through areas where nations illegally claim territory. The effect of these missions is not necessarily confrontational. Shots do not have to be fired. Warfare does not need to break out, but a certain resolve has to be shown to provide that resistance that might make a provocateur back off. The 296 ship Navy already is hard pressed to do this job and it ain't getting any easier. A smaller Navy with even fewer ships will not be able to handle these missions. Is the Pentagon leadership ready to cede the high seas to China and Russia? It is certainly starting to look like it. Well, that does it for this week. Before we go, we need to express our respect for those American military people and Afghan civilians killed August 26th at Hamid Karzai Airport outside Kabul, that those Marines, soldiers, and a sailor died in a dangerous place trying to help others is a mark of what it means to wear an American uniform. Well said, Chris. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian for his support, as well as to Fink and Terry Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening, folks, and bye-bye. Thank you.